0: Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, Acts chapter 23. As you turn there, I want to encourage you to come back for our Sunday evening service tonight at 6. We're going to be having a family meeting there as well. We're going to be affirming new members into the church. We're also, Lord willing, going to be affirming three new elders, Brock Gerber, Neil Gerber, and Phil Smith. And as we, uh, if, if the Lord wills, we affirm Phil as an elder. We're also uh, affirming him as an associate pastor. His his title will change to that. And so come back this evening and be sure to, to be a part of that. Also, this evening, uh, Jordan Embry is going to be teaching and, and sharing. I, I asked him to talk a little bit about some of the historical, theological confessions that we uh, have in our community of, of faith. I think that's an area that we as as Baptists are sometimes weak on, and so he's going to be talking a little bit from Jude 3 about contending for our our faith and then how the the church has used creeds and confessions to help us do that, and really just the the practical comfort that thinking about those things biblically can, can do, and so I'm really excited about hearing from, from him this evening, and, and as you know, what their family has gone through and how uh, God's Word has, has helped them, and, and I, I just trust that you're going to be very encouraged, as I have been uh, talking to Jordan over the last few months, and, and encourage you to come back this evening for that. Well, we're in Acts chapter 23, and, and let me just kind of re- remind you where we are in the book of Acts, we kind of began the book of Acts talking about the, the witness, and really we divided the book of Acts into several sections dealing with, with witness. We talked about our, our, the witness laying its foundations at the beginning of the book of Acts, and kind of some things about the church being set up there at, at the beginning. We talked about the witness revealing its true nature and proclaiming the new covenant, We talked about the witness engaging the world through missions and then we talked about the witness establishing the the church. We talked about the local church and discipleship. We also talked about how the witness revealed its true beauty and we're entering this last section as we talk about the witness confronting the powers of the world and we're going to be spending several weeks uh, talking about the, the church and government and kind of thinking through some of these things. Last week, we began talking about uh, God's people in a political world. We talked about that last week, and we're going to talk about it this week as well. Then we're going to continue talking about the gospel and the government. We're going to talk about God's gospel mission for the government. We're going to talk about God's uh, God's call for us to bear injustice from the government We're going to talk about being bold witnesses for the government. so We're going to talk about some of those things, and then enter the last couple chapters of the Book of Acts. But today, again, we're continuing looking at Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, before the council. Remember, Claudius Lysias has rescued Paul from the mob at the end of chapter 22. The very end of chapter 22, Paul stands before the council. Remember, he's just been struck by the high priest. By the high priest's orders. And then uh, we, we come into verse 6 that we're looking at this morning. If you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Paul says, I'll, I'll start in verse 5. Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler, ruler of your people. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and we're thankful for you Uh, allowing us to to come this morning and and gather as a church to hear it, to to sing your word, to pray your word. And as as Tony uh, prayed already, we would ask that we would also be changed by your word this morning. We love you. Uh, We love you because you first loved us, and we love each other because of the work that you've done in our hearts. Lord, help us to love our world Help us to love the people who are around us who are perishing. Help us have boldness to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. Give us opportunity and courage to do so. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let me remind you a little bit of some of the things we we talked about last week. This story in the book of Acts is occurring as Luke is revealing some things about how we proclaim the gospel and how those of us who proclaim the gospel interact with the government and the powers that be around us. And Luke is is telling us some some principles that help us as we do that. And really the question that some people have had as we've even talked about politics and talked about how we interact with the government is, is should Christians even participate in that process of, of influencing political powers around us. And Luke is going to tell us, yes, we see that we have to engage in, in politics in a God-glorifying way with the goal of protecting and advancing the ministry of disciple-making. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But let me just, uh, let me just talk a little bit about what we considered last week. Last week, this was kind of the, the central idea that we looked at, remember? It was, it was this. Our status in this kingdom enables us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. So God has given different ones of us, different places of status, different influence in this society. And wherever we are in this kingdom, that enables us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. And there were three areas that I, I said that I, I, want us just to, I wanted us to think about. Kind of three areas. The first was positions of privilege. We saw that Paul is a, pres- a person of privilege, and Paul uses his position of privilege both as a Jew and in the text we looked at last week as a Roman citizen as opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And then we talked about the second area was people of power, and we, we talked about how Paul uh, w- saw his relationship to people of power, even those who were treating him unfairly, unjustly. Which brings us to the third area that I want us to begin to talk about this morning, and that's the practice of politics. Every society, every group has mechanisms that are employed to make decisions. Your workplace has politics, your family has politics, the local government has politics. Every group of which we are a part, there are mechanisms in place by which decisions are made. Some of those mechanisms are official, some unofficial, but the ways in which decisions are made are influenced by, by politics. It's how we make decisions. And again, Luke, in this part of the book of Acts, is showing us how we use our influence in order to make decisions, And how we as Christians participate in that process. Some people have said, well, Christians should have nothing to do with politics. The reality is we can't escape it. The question is, how do we do it in a biblical way? A few days ago, Mark asked me, said, hey, Daniel, did you get in trouble for the quote from Senator Warren that you did last week? And I said, no, because she's a Democrat. If it had been a Republican, I might have been in some trouble. Which brings me to today. Let me quote a person, and this is, you know, just equal opportunity here. I'm going to quote a person here who's identified as a Democrat but worked in a Republican administration. So if uh, you're offended, just it's the other people, okay? And uh, I think this, I think we would all, I hope we would all agree as as I read what he said, we'd all agree this is a, a wrong way for Christians in America to think about how to use our political influence. This is from Michael Flynn. Uh, Michael Flynn served, uh, very briefly, as national security advisor in the Trump administration, and he was speaking at something called the Reawaken America Tour. And he said these words to pastors, and he talked about how pastors should, should preach the Constitution. Now, now, if his point had been, we should support the Constitution, or we should be grateful for the Constitution, we're all on board, right? But instead, he went way, way beyond that. Listen to what he said. He said, when a pastor is leading their flock, they shouldn't be standing there pretending like they know a lot of Bible verses, which I don't. He should have stopped at that, I think. Uh, Instead, he said, pastors can only preach because of the Constitution, so, quote, what they need to be doing is they need to be talking about the Constitution from the pulpit as much as the Bible. They have to do that. You ought to be up there preaching the Constitution as much or more than the Bible, and if you watch the video, the crowd is amening as he says that. Now again, if he had said we should be thankful for the Constitution, we should celebrate the Constitution. As a pastor, I should be grateful for that. All on board, right? But he goes way beyond that, that you should preach the Constitution from the pulpit. What is that? That's called syncretism. Syncretism is something that the people of Israel struggled with. They, they took the the revelation that God had given them, they went into a culture and then they adopted the the values and the practices of that culture and they tried to to blend them together. And what I think uh, Mr. Flynn is describing here, General Flynn is describing here, is is this idea that many people have in our culture today. And, And that's the idea that the church is a tool that is to be used to advance a human government. That the church is some tool that we use to advance a political end. And let's be really clear here, right? It's not the Constitution that enables us to preach the gospel. God enables us to preach the gospel. And there are people all around the world today who are preaching the the gospel in in places where they're not allowed to do so, and they're able to do so because God divinely enables them to do so. Now, we're grateful for the Constitution. We're grateful that we live in a a place that, by God's grace, we can do so with, with freedom. But ultimately, and this is where we have to be very, very clear, and this is where sometimes people in our culture get mixed up, it is God alone that is to be the object of our worship. Not our culture, not great thinkers, but God and God alone. Now, we're a Judeo-Christian culture. There's a worldview that shaped those who ratified and wrote the Constitution. Absolutely. But there's a danger in in what Flynn and, and others have said think about peter remember peter he's on the mount of transfiguration he's on the mount of transfiguration and and what happens he sees jesus transfigured in all his 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 glory he sees his divinity displayed in in invisible form and then he sees moses and, and elijah there with him and, and what does peter say he says, well, hey let's let's build tents for all three of you and and what does he do he say let's take these two other human beings and elevate them to the same level of god and, and it's, it's incredible foolishness right God and God alone is to be the object of our worship. America, we can be grateful for it, we can believe in its uniqueness, but we don't see America synonymous with God's kingdom or certain politicians as not just allies, but divine warriors for God and beyond questioning. The church is not a tool to be used to advance a worldly kingdom. There's some very wrong thinking that people in our culture sometimes have. And ironically, I think many of the people who have this aren't, aren't even people who regularly go to church, may not even uh, identify themselves as Christian, but this is what they think that the church should do. That's not how we engage in politics. He said, well, okay, if that's not what we're to do, we're not to engage in politics to advance a, a human institution, what are we to do? Well, let's, let's think about it this way. Here's, here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we look about this text we must engage in politics in a God-glorifying way with the goal of protecting and advancing the ministry of disciple-making. The church has been divinely commissioned by God to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel. And so we do engage in politics. We, we do engage and try to influence the culture around us. We want good decisions to be made. And, and, and we do that in a way, though, in a way, in a manner that glorifies God, and with the goal of protecting and advancing the ministry of disciple making. We want the government to do what God has instituted governments to do, and and more than that, we wanna be able to, by God's grace, in giving us a government like that, we wanna protect and advance the ministry of disciple making. We'll see Paul interacting with the government and powers that be in the chapters ahead, and, and we'll see that becomes his focus. So let's walk through the text with me if you will, okay? Look look at Acts chapter 23. And remember Paul has been brought by Lysias, Claudius Lysias. He's been brought before this this council. And remember the council, the council is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this group of 70 Jewish uh, officials, 70 Jewish rulers who have the ability to make decisions. Now, The history of the Sanhedrin is is a little bit complex, and it's hard to kind of piece all of it together. Some people, some scribes at the time, said it went all the way back to Moses. Remember, Moses appointed those uh, 70 leaders in Deuteronomy. But for sure, what happens during the intertestamental time is that this group in Jerusalem, this, this group of rulers or judges began to take on positions of more and more influence. And what's more, as the Roman government came in, the Roman government saw this council as a council that they could use to advance their own ends. And so how do we deal with the Jewish people? Well, they're very, very... passionate about the religion so we can take this Sanhedrin this council of 70 rulers and we can work with them and at times the Roman government would dispose some of the members of the Sanhedrin they would support other members of the Sanhedrin they'd mix in with the politics and it was just a mess but that's what we see Claudius Lysias doing here he said okay I've got this guy and remember what happened he had found Paul about to be killed by a mob and so he had rescued him and as they had gone into the barracks, Paul says, do you mind if I say a few words? And Lysias thinks, okay, well, maybe this will calm things down. Paul says a few words. Things do not calm down. They go crazy. And so Claudius Lysias says, okay, i got to rescue him again. So he's rescued him a second time, takes him, and the next day brings him to the Sanhedrin. And what Lysias is thinking is Paul has obviously made the Jews mad. I, I can't figure out why he's making them so mad, but maybe if he talks here to the Sanhedrin, they can help me understand what's going on here, and I can get back to my nap, which I've been trying to do for a couple days now. And what happens? Paul is talking to the the council. He gets struck by the high priest. And Paul in verse five says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's verse five. As Paul has just been struck by the high priest, he recognizes something. He is not going to get a fair trial here first words out of his mouth, he's getting struck by command of the high priest. And so he tries a different tact. Verse 6. It says that Paul perceived, that is, he he looked and he comprehended, he understood. And as he perceives, as he looks at the council, he recognizes that some are Pharisees and some are Sadducees. Luke doesn't tell us what that means yet. He just says Paul recognizes that there are two groups making up this council, two primary groups. And so he he shouts something out in the middle of the council. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee. We've talked about Paul being trained as a Pharisee in in weeks prior. He says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of Pharisees. That is, my my teaching legacy goes back to to teacher upon teacher who taught Pharisaical teachings. That's who I am. And it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And what happens next? Imagine, again, you're watching this from Lysias' perspective Paul has just been struck. He's cried this thing out. Verse 7, all of a sudden a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. And now Luke tells us why that's so. Verse 8, he says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In other words, the Sadducees are those who were more liberal in their theology. The Sadducees were those who were from positions of, of wealth. They came from priestly families. They were those who were more closely aligned with Rome. And so they had tremendous influence in the Sanhedrin. In fact, they, they, at this point in time, they, they dominated the Sanhedrin. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They only took the first five books of the Bible as authoritative, the, the Pentateuch. And they said, you can't find the resurrection in these first five books of the Bible, and so we don't believe in the resurrection. Remember, whenever Jesus interacts with them and tries to show them the validity of the resurrection, he does so by by talking uh, from the, the Pentateuch, and that's that's what he's, he's doing there. That's the Sadducees. They don't believe in a resurrection, and Luke tells us, or in in angels or spirits, and so what they don't believe in is are these angelic beings, or, or more, maybe more specifically, the idea that a, a spirit can exist after death, before the resurrection, they don't believe in that. Now the Pharisees, Luke tells us, believe in all of that. They believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were more conservative theologically. They were those who held not just to scripture in fact, but they, they had all sorts of traditions on top of scripture in order to help them make sure they didn't disobey scripture in their minds, went way beyond what they were supposed to, and we've talked about that before. They were also those who were influential with the scribes, with those who taught the law. They were very influential in the, the synagogue. So the, the priests and uh, were, were more influenced by the Sadducees, we think. They were The Sadducees were more influential in the temple system and the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and those closely associated with them, the scribes, the lawyers, they were going to be more influential in the synagogues. They believe in a the resurrection. They believe in angels. They believe in... And, and people continue to exist after death. Their, their souls are eternal. And so, that explains what happens next. Look at verse 9. The Pharisees who believe Daniel twelve two that says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, think that there's something to what Paul is saying, at least in terms of the idea of the resurrection. So, Paul has just cried out, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a son of Pharisees, and it's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And then verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up. They contended sharply, well, we don't find anything wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? But then the, the Sadducees stand up, and, and they begin to, to accuse In Verse 10, the dissension becomes violent, and Lysias This tribune has to rescue Paul yet again. This guy is about to get himself killed a third time. I can't take him anywhere, right? Now, as we read verse 8, verses 9 and 10 make sense, and verse 7 makes sense as well. This is kind of a funny story. Paul comes in, recognizes he's not going to get a fair hearing, shouts something to cause chaos. But he's not just trying to cause chaos because he thinks it's funny to watch Pharisees and Sadducees nearly tear him apart. There's a, a method to his madness, if you will. Notice there's three things that he does here in one masterful stroke. By just shouting out those words, there's three things that he's accomplished. One, he's made it beneficial for one of the groups to identify with him and defend him. He comes in there having no friends. Nobody in that room likes Paul, except maybe Lysias. Nobody likes Paul. Paul shouts this thing out, and all of a sudden, one of them takes, takes ownership for him. When I was in high school... I worked at a place called Luby's Cafeteria, which I think like two people know what that is. Uh, it was If you're from the South, you, you probably know Luby's Cafeteria is, but I worked in Luby's Cafeteria and I had two managers. Neither of them especially loved me. Um, I, I was not a very pleasant high school child sometimes to, to work with, but, uh, but they each had different tasks they wanted me to do. One manager wanted me to be in charge of, of dishwashing not in charge, wanted me to wash dishes. In charge makes it sound kind of more glamorous than it was. Uh, Washing dishes meant being back in the back hot room in Texas summers with plate after plate coming at you with half-chewed food and having to scrape it off into this this trash can and then emptying the trash can that always broke. It was just a mess and dish after dish and it was a terrible job. The other manager wanted me to be in charge of putting tea in glasses. Guess which job I wanted, right? But these two managers didn't really like each other all that much. And so what I would do is I would, uh, I'm not saying this was the right thing to do, but what I would do is I'd, I'd come in and I'd make sure I found Susan, the manager who wanted me to do the iced tea first. I'd say, hi, Susan. And she'd say, hi, Daniel. Are you going to do drink station today? I said, I don't know. I thought I might need to check with Mark to see what he wanted me to do. No, no, no. You're doing drink, drink duty today. Okay, you know, whatever. If that's what you want me to do. I just don't want to cause any trouble, you know. <laughs> she didn't like me all that much, but she had a vest. Her power resided in me doing the drinks that day, right? Paul, the Pharisees don't love Paul, but their theology's on the line here. He's one of them so they take his part. So that's one thing he's done. He's got someone to identify with him to defend him. Secondly, he gets the case removed from this Jewish court that is not going to give him a fair trial, right? Lysias watches this happen, and what, what does Lysias see? He sees these people who are incapable of even having a conversation with Paul. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are going at each other, and Lysias has to remove them. He goes, well, I'm not going to allow this group to deal with Paul. And in chapter 23, we see that as he writes this letter to the governor, we see that he's, he's favorably uh, disposed, toward, disposed, towards, disposed towards Paul. So that's the second thing that he's accomplished. And then this is the most important thing. So he's, he's made it beneficial for one of the groups in the room to identify with him, so it's not just this railroad of a trial. He's also gotten the case removed from the Jewish courts into the hands of the Romans. And then the third thing, this is most importantly, he keeps the core of his defense, the gospel message, doesn't he? He keeps the core of what he's going to be defending, the the gospel. It's the hope of the resurrection, he says, that is causing me to be on trial. He he sees the cultural conditions, and he he uses those to escape and gain advocates, but that isn't the the reason for the chaos. It's a pivotal scene. It's a pivotal scene in the book of Acts. Over and over again, he refers to the, the resurrection. He keeps the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the center. So, for example, Next chapter, Acts 24, 15, before Felix, he says, I have a, a hope in God, which these men, his accusers themselves, accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Verse 21, this is the thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. And then you come to the very end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verse 20, he says, As he's talking with the Jews, he says, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. Paul keeps the gospel at the heart of his defense. Isn't that brilliant? He makes sure that the issue that they're going to be concerned with is the issue of the gospel. He doesn't fully identify with the Pharisees, doesn't defend their hypocrisy, he doesn't compromise the gospel message. He is still very much Gospel focused. One more thing I want you to notice before we start talking about some principles. Look at verse 11. And notice here the kindness of God in the midst of all this. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Remember, it's the Lord who told him he'd be here, it's the Lord who told him that hardship awaited him in Jerusalem. The hardship has come. Paul has been faithful. The Lord stands by him and he says, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You've done well. You've done what I've asked you to do. You're going to continue to do it, and I'm going to continue to give you the ability to do do so. There's a beauty in that for all of us this morning. Maybe you're a, a parent. And you've tried to be faithful to the Lord and testifying to the facts about Jesus to your kids, and it's not gone well often. What is Jesus' words to you? Hey, take courage. Take courage. I've I've stood with you. I'm going to continue to stand with you as you've testified to the facts about me thus far. I'm going to enable you to continue to do so. Maybe you're a you're, maybe you're a child and you're, you're dealing with, with unreasonable parents and you've been trying to testify to them the gospel and the conversations haven't gone well. Hey, Jesus stands by you this morning. He says, take courage. Take courage. Just as you've testified the facts about me thus far, so you must continue to hold fast, continue to proclaim the gospel. Let's talk now about some principles for politics because at the end of the day, God doesn't guarantee political outcomes but he guarantees you that he will equip you to accomplish all of his purposes for you, most especially this, this ultimate purpose. Here, here are five principles for politics, I think, for, for believers from this section of the book of Acts. Number one, number one, it is the ultimate purpose of the church to make disciples, and we must not do anything to compromise that mission. As we engage in, in the ways in which decisions are made in our culture, we have to be very, very careful that we don't do so in such a way that we would compromise the, the gospel message. You know, my, my life verse, Colossians 1, verses, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature, complete in Christ. For this, Paul says, I toil, working with all wisdom, the energy that he powerfully works within me. That's Paul's life's ambition. And so engage in politics, engage in how decisions are made in our culture, but don't do so in such a way that you would compromise your ultimate mission and purpose to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine if you were to hear that there had been an incident at Kroger with me, You hear that I had yelled out some a poor person who was ringing up my, my groceries and I got really mad and, and just yelled at this. Person. Imagine how, how embarrassed would you be for me, right? I Think, man, what a, what a foolish thing to do. Why would Daniel lose his testimony over 34 cents, right? I mean, in fairness, 34 cents is 34 cents. But um, how foolish would that be? Losing my, my ability to proclaim the eternal truths of God because I get angry over, over a small amount of, 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 of change, and yet we do so so often, over so many issues, and not just in terms of, of politics, but in all walks of life, we, we hold so fast to some things, we lose sight of our ultimate purpose, must not do that. Number two, number two: it is biblical for Christians to pursue the, the good of all people. It's, it's biblical and right for Christians to pursue the good of all people. So our ultimate goal is to proclaim the gospel, but as we do so, it's not wrong for us to want good things in our culture or our society. It's not wrong to want prosperity. It's not wrong to want justice. It's not wrong to, to want the things that make a good culture. We, we know that because it's, it's a means to an end. We, we engage in life. We engage in politics. We engage in work. We engage in school. Seeking the good of other person. I was talking with uh, someone as he came in this morning and talking about being about the workplace and just the darkness of the world in which he's in, and yet the excitement of being a light in those places. Jesus would say in Matthew five sixteen, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So we want to do that. We want to engage in, in politics, and we have this ultimate goal, but it's also not wrong to say, okay, as I engage in politics, what are some, some good outcomes to, to take place here? Paul does this throughout the book of Acts. Justice is, is a good desire. We also do that because we love people and we want good things for them. We want people to be able to, to feed their families. We want people to, to flourish and, and families to flourish. We want justice for the weak. Those things are good things to want. And we want societal institutions that are going to fulfill God's purposes for them. Romans chapter 13. The one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We we desire that to take place. We want the powerful people in society and the weak people in society to to do good things. We desire the government to, to take evil people in our society and punish them to prevent more people from doing evil things. We want the innocent people in our society to be protected from evildoers. Those are good things. And as a society has good things taking place in it, it's a place where the gospel can grow and flourish. Now God can also use the gospel and cause it to flourish in dark places as well, but we know that God has this desire for society and so we wanna pursue that as well. Uh, Herman Boving put it this way in the wonderful works of God. He says there's, there's a speech of God which continues to go out to everyone. The confessors of the reformed faith have always acknowledged this by speaking of a material call which be encountered outside the Christian world. It's the privilege of all men and all nations. The Gentiles do not share on the calling through the word of the gospel. That is, they don't believe it, but that does not mean that they receive no calling at all. God speaks to the unbeliever also in nature, in the reason, and through the conscience. True, this calling is inadequate for salvation, for it does not know of Christ, who is the only way to the Father and the only name given under heaven unto salvation. But it is nevertheless of great value and may not be underestimated in its significance. And so we desire... For people to live in in a good culture which they can can see the kindness of God through his common grace. We want to help people love their neighbor and live good lives. And we want to pursue that as much as possible because we love other people. And we believe that as those things happen, we have opportunities to proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's biblical for you to pursue the good of all people in politics, in your workplace, in your home. That's a good thing. Number three, here's here's where things get a little more more dicey. Remember you love me. Number three, (laughs) it's necessary to align with people with whom we disagree at times, right? Uh, Paul isn't perfectly aligned with the Pharisees in this room, right? I think that's fair to say. That's an understatement, right? Right? Paul here aligns with them and throughout the book of Acts at times. In fact, it's impossible to submit to government at all if, if, you, if you think about it, if you don't at times align yourself with, with people with whom you disagree. Paul does it here. Jesus in Matthew 10-16 gives us some counsel here, though. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so as we interact with the world, we recognize at times we're going to align with people with whom we disagree, but we're gonna do so in a wise as serpents and innocent as a dove's way. Lord Palmerston, in a speech to the House of Commons in 1848 said this to the the British Parliament, he said, I say it's a narrow policy to suppose that this country, or that it is to be marked out, uh, he, he says it's a narrow policy to suppose that this country or that country is to be marked out as the eternal ally or the perpetual enemy of England. In other words, we don't have eternal allies. We don't have perpetual enemies. He says our our goals are eternal and perpetual, and those interests it is our duty to follow. Now, it wasn't really true of Great Britain. Their interests aren't eternal. They are a temporary kingdom, but it's true of the church. Our goals are eternal. The people with whom we partner are, are temporary in terms of institutions. But Couple things to keep in mind. And, and this is, remember, this is this is where things I'll, I'll be careful not to go extra biblical, but but think about how to do this in a biblical way. One caution would be this. If we think about it, it's necessary to align with people whom, with whom we disagree at times, one caution is this: we must not forget who our true co-laborers are. Our true co-laborers are not our political allies in, in society some of them may be if, if they're believers, but our, our true brothers and sisters, our true co-laborers are other believers. That's that's where our ultimate loyalty lies. Those are the people we're going to be spending eternity with, and so we, we probably should should act like it, right? Secondly, and, and this is where we have to be very careful, we need to accept that some of us are going to have different opinions about how these alliances will work. Here's the reality. I think most of us, if we said, okay, what's what's the ideal government? What is a government that's that's a biblical government, biblical secular government. What is it doing? Well, it's, it's protecting the innocent. It's punishing the wicked, creating those, those conditions in which that can, can happen, good can flourish. We're all, I think we're all going to kind of paint the same picture. But we might, we might have different convictions about the most pragmatic, the, the wisest way to get there. So, for example, let's say there's an election. And there's these these two candidates, candidate A and candidate B. And and you say, Well, I, I'm gonna support candidate A, and, and I say, Well, I, I I can't support candidate A or B, right? Because I, I think the I think neither one of them are going to pursue the ends to which God would have us have us do as a society. And you say, Well, I I disagree with that. So for example, let's say that um let's say there's both both candidates Let's take this situation. Let's say there's, there's two candidates, and it's a few years ago. And both candidates are running for governor of, let's just pick a state, Illinois. And, uh, and, and I, I'm not actually, I'm not thinking of a specific election, honestly. But let's say there's, there's these two candidates running for governor of Illinois, and uh, both of them support calling same-sex relationships marriage, Right? And you say, well, look, this, this candidate who does it is better than this candidate who does it, and so I'm going to support this one. And maybe I say, well, look, that that's a step too far for me. Once we go down that road, it it, it uh, affects society in, in too great a way. I, I, I can't do that. I, can't, I, I, want, I want evangelical Christians to, to not be something that this, this party can just assume we're going to show up. I, I can't support either candidate. I'm going to support a third candidate. We both have the same end, but we have different ways of of viewing how that, I'm not saying one of us is right or wrong in this scenario, this is kind of a short scenario, but I'm I'm just saying you could see how different people could, could, could say that the bar is this low, I can't go lower. But here's another sad reality, this is really sad. Sometimes the bar does go lower, right? Let's say it's a few years beyond today, and now you have two candidates running for the governor of Illinois, and both of them say, "I believe that you call these uh, same-sex relationships marriage." But one candidate says, "I further believe that for a church or any organization to say anything different is hate speech. We're going to shut it down." And the other candidate says, "Well, I'm going to protect a church's right to say that." Well, the bar just got lower for me, perhaps, right? Maybe, I, and you may have a different opinion on that. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to argue for a certain position, I'm just trying to help you see that, that we're going to have different, we all have the same view of how society should work. But we're going to have different perceptions of how to get there. But no matter what our position is, we have to recognize that we're going to have to align ourselves with people with whom we disagree at times. But that brings up the next principle, which I think is so crucial. If, if three is true, this becomes even more important. Number four, it is crucial that we maintain our ability to speak prophetically. As a church, there is a danger in becoming so firmly entrenched on one side that we lose our ability to speak the truth. As we've seen, as we've gone through the book of Acts, despite aligning with the Pharisees here, Paul is all about the gospel. It is wrong to waver in our commitment to call those in authority to obey God first and foremost. What does Nathan say to David in 2 Samuel 12? He says to David as he talks about the sin, he says, You are that man. What does Daniel say to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 23? You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, you've drunk from them. You've praised the gods of silver and and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not hear or see or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. We Christians must not, as we align ourselves with this party or that party or this candidate or that candidate, we cannot lose our prophetic voice to say to those who are in power, you have not honored the God of heaven. We cannot lose our ability to do that. It's crucial we speak that truth in love. This past week, 47 Republicans in the House of Representatives voted to protect same-sex marriage. 10%, five Republican senators, 10% of the Republican caucus in the Senate has signaled that they'll do the same. More have signaled they're in favor of same-sex marriage, even if they won't support that bill. The point is this, our political allies are not our co-laborers in the gospel. We love them, but they're not our co-laborers in the gospel, which brings us to number five. It's dangerous to fall in love with political power. The Sanhedrin, these guys in the Sanhedrin are are, are worried about preserving their position in a kingdom that no longer exists today. Think about that. They were so concerned about staying in in step with Rome. Rome doesn't even exist today as an empire. Those who love political power are fools. What does God say to the man who built bigger barns to solidify his wealth? In Luke chapter 12, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? We're in danger when we follow the fool, for they will perish. Those who love political power are not your co-laborers, they're your mission field. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we're we're not fighting people, we're fighting against worldview and spiritual darkness. And we may align with one political party more than another, but we continue to speak that truth in love. And in this section of Acts, there are people whom God sovereignly brings around Paul to help him. He brings the Tribune, he, he brings the Pharisees, but make no mistake, these aren't people who love the Lord. They're his mission field. And over and over again, he's faithful to proclaim the gospel. To Felix, he proclaims the gospel. Agrippa, he proclaims the gospel. Our status in this kingdom enables us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. We have to engage in politics in such a way that God is glorified with the goal of protecting and advancing the ministry of disciple-making. You know, we're blessed with an amazing constitution, right? We're blessed with an amazing system of government despite, despite the different things go on. And so, and so we're blessed with the Constitution, but I'm not gonna do a three-week series on it, right? You know, I, I wouldn't get out, we the people, before I got fired, right? So, but know this, right? Be grateful for our country. Be grateful for the form of government we have, but recognize we've been given this form of government by God, right now sovereign, that's where we are, for a purpose to proclaim the gospel. And if people know that you love America in your life, if people in your life know that you love America, but they don't know that you love Jesus Christ, you've wasted the blessing that God has given you in making you an American. God has placed you in this culture at this time for you to proclaim the hope that you have in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's be faithful. Let's be bold to do so. Let's do so through the enabling work of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you've given us uh, people and authority over us. And Father, we pray that you give us the ability to influence them. But we do we pray that we would do so, keeping in mind our, our ultimate hope is in you and your kingdom, that we would proclaim the gospel in such a way that those who are lost would see the beauty of your son Jesus and would trust in him. We pray that you put us in our families in positions where we can live in, in peace and where we can inv- proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, to the people that we love, to the, the, the person at the grocery store, to the, the, the person in our, our workplace. We, we pray that you protect our ability to do so. And if, Father, if we ever lose those abilities, help us to recognize that our enabling comes not through our human government but through our, our sovereign king. Please continue to give us your divine enablement to proclaim that our hope is in the resurrection of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.